Welcome to this episode of Indubitably. I'm Josh. And I'm Kelly. And today we're going to be talking to you about universal basic income. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. This is a topic that gained some prominence when Andrew Yang, who we'll talk about a little later, ran for president and made it a platform of his campaign. How'd that work out for him? <laughs> well, it didn't work out well, but actually, you know, it's not like he had a real chance of being president anyway. So this did gain him some some prominence and or at least brought the idea to the forefront of our national discourse when it a lot of people I don't think had heard of it previously. That's true. I don't think I really understood what it was until it became more focused in the mm. uh, presidential campaign that he ran. Mm -hmm. And when we have debates around economic policy, there's always the basic money components of it, which might not seem super interesting. You know, the economic ramifications, does it stimulate or depress the economy? But also there's the principled implications that come with them. And, and for me, at least, this is the really interesting part. Questions like, what do we value as a society? Because even if we lose some money, it could theoretically still be the right policy. Or as a subset of that, who do we think should be the primary beneficiaries of any particular policy? Yeah, those are all really important questions for most social policy. Um, and social policy with an economic bent makes that even more interesting. Yeah, I think it just takes doing basic math and makes it a bit more interesting. We're going to be talking about a lot of basic things. Oh, my God. Anyway, <laughs> so what is universal basic income? So universal basic income is, uh, if you just parse it out word for word, it makes a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> we don't, that's, that's it. Jo our job is done. Okay. It's universal, over. it's basic, and it's income. Yeah. So, so the universality of it means that everybody... In the affected area, so in the government um, or the jurisdiction of like the federal government or the city or wherever, everybody, um, usually the adults only, because um, what, would, what would a kid do with $500 a month? Buy a new PlayStation. Maybe. Um, how much is a PlayStation? 500 bucks. Is it really? Yeah, I know that because my old PlayStation, the controllers are stopping to connect, which I think is a, a scam by Sony. I think that's on purpose now that the PlayStation 5 is out. Anyway. I digress. Continue. <laughs> so it's everybody. It's all the adults, regardless of how much money they actually make or don't make. Uh, basic in the sense that it is meant to cover really the essential needs, like your rent, groceries, things that are functionally required to live. And uh, as far as the income portion of it goes, it's a set amount that comes in every month. Um, in some of the discussions we've had, it's either $1,000 a month, $500 a month, something like that. It's a, it's a steady expected payment and it's for everybody, which means that, and this is an important, I think, question, it would mean that people who probably don't need it would be getting it as well. Mm -hmm. It's for everybody and also for anything. Mm -hmm. which puts it in contrast to other types of social programs. Right. Like um, nutritional programs. There's programs that help with rent for people who are income restricted, things like that. This is actually cash 
So it, it's, it has an intended purpose of going to things that would be for your basic, you know, sustenance of your life. But obviously, you know, if you'd like to forgo groceries and get a PlayStation, I guess no one's stopping you. So. Which which is one of the things we'll be talking about later, uh, which makes it illegitimate in the minds of some people, but is one of the big advocacies that other people point to, which is everybody deserves to have financial control over their own lives. Anyway, we'll talk about that later. So as a concept, it's been discussed in a lot of places and also tested in some places. So I think since we already mentioned him, it would make the most sense to begin with talking about Andrew Yang, who began the idea of a freedom dividend, which is kind of a hilarious name for it. (laughs) Whoever his campaign manager is was very proud of themselves for that title. (laughs) So his program would be $1,000 a month to each American adult. And and actually, I think during his campaign, he promised that $1,000 to people who followed him on Twitter, that he would personally pay that $1,000 for anybody who followed him. Or, Or like if you followed him on Twitter, you'd be entered into a sweepstakes to be Andrew Yang supported universal in basic income recipient. I hate that idea. <laughs> I, it's it's like giveaways on Instagram, but only if you like, follow, comment, and tag a friend, mm-hmm. you, can, you can pay for your groceries. As you run for president. <laughs> oh, I don't like that. Um, so people have calculated out that this would functionally cost about $4 trillion per year to do it for everyone. I did some math and I actually think it would only cost about $3 trillion per year, but that's a substantial amount of money annually Mm -hmm. to put Mm -hmm. into a program like this, especially considering some people probably don't need it. Yeah. And I think for, for contrast, just to make those, I know we've talked in other episodes about imaginary numbers. Once we start talking about numbers that large, it's, it's hard to conceptualize them. So for contrast, uh, the current Social Security and Medicare payments that the United States makes are $2 trillion. And for another example, the military budget of the United States is over $700 billion. So were we to implement this freedom dividend, universal basic income, it would be more than the cost of Social Security, Medicare, and the military budget combined. If we're finally starting to talk about gutting the military's budget, though, you know, (laughs) I looked that number up just for you. I knew you'd like it. I one day I'll have like some of my dreams actualized, one of which is to gut the military's budget. (laughs) If enough Um, people listen to this podcast, I will donate a thousand dollars to each (laughs) person. This is it's especially hilarious because my dad is a military vet and I'm still like, nope, get rid Mm. of the whole thing, which would include his retirement payments. But (laughs) Anyway, um, that's a lot of money and that would be a lot of cash circulating in the system. So being in a position where we actually paid that to everybody to print the money would probably cause some inflation or even like mega inflation or having that much money come out of an existing tax structure or whatever would mean necessarily taking that money out of other budgets, jokes aside about the military, what would actually have to be cut in order to pay for this? Mm-hmm. And and we'll talk about that later in the episode. But as I mentioned before, I think in economic debates, this is where the really interesting stuff is. What do we have to trade off to implement one program where are the cuts that we're willing to make in other programs? And I think that shows kind of what we value, who we value, et cetera. Yeah. If it comes down to it in this 
makes it so other social programs, which are actually targeted for people in need, have to be cut so that everybody gets a thousand dollars a month to do with what they wish. I'm not sure that's actually targeting the issue that it wants to, mm-hmm. but I mean, if that's the trade-off, then that's an important discussion to consider. Mm-hmm. And so while Andrew Yang brought this up as a proposal for the country as a whole, and I suppose implemented it through his Twitter scheme to, I don't know how many people, a dozen people, there have been some experimental implementations of this around the United States already. Exactly. So one of the things that probably would come to mind if people have been paying attention to the discussion about universal basic income is that the city of Stockton in California has has had a pilot program for this for a few years now, and it gained some prominence. And there's also been some involvement from soon-to-be former CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, who put $15 million towards a pilot program, which uh, meant that a bunch of cities in the United States would get half a million dollars a piece to put towards essentially testing universal basic income payments towards people. But as this was a limited amount of money, it would be a temporary situation. Whereas most people who are talking about UBI are looking at this being some sort of permanent established program for all citizens for all time. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, again, with the caveat that it is temporary, like you just mentioned, the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, or SEED, very clever, was founded in February of 2019. I always wonder if they come up with the acronym first and then reverse engineer the words to make it fit. Like this would be really cool if it spelled SEED. So we'll, we'll come up with the words that'll let that happen. Or if they you know, come up with the words they want to come up with and just recognize like, hey, that's convenient. It's seed. Anyway, uh, so in February of 2019, the uh, mayor at the time, Michael Tubbs, implemented this universal basic uh, income experiment in Stockton, which was funded by donors, including the Economic Security Project. And what they did was they they gave randomly selected residents $500 a month for two years with no strings attached. And the economic security project who did the report on it found that it measurably improved participants' job prospects, financial security, and overall well-being. So limited sample, but they seem to think that it was useful. Yeah. The evidence that comes from this is that $500 is helpful, but it's not enough to satisfy most people's actual needs. So they they were helped by this amount of money, but they were not fully satisfied by that amount of money, which is understandable. So they were seeking more work, but they had some freedom to do that. You know, say if you're job seeking and you don't have enough money for a new wardrobe, $500 a month would be enough to get you like a nice suit or maybe help you pay off um, some credit card debt or do things that you otherwise couldn't do, which might make your economic situation better, but not fully get you to a point where you didn't have to work in most cases. Mm-hmm. Even even take an online course, perhaps to fill out your resume or, or pad up, shore up your education to maybe qualify for a job that you wouldn't have otherwise. Mm-hmm. This is assuming that this is what people use the money for. So the, the, the problem with these experiments, though, is the funding from it almost always universally comes from philanthropy. And so the assessment that they have of a universal basic income program is sort of not a universal basic income, but a basic income program. And it's only really providing half of what's necessary to decide if we should establish this on a large scale or not. Like when people get money, they're happy. 
that seems to be the takeaway from these experiments, which I mean, I could have told you that without an experiment. But the, the, the real question is, how can this be done on a larger scale? Because these organizations like the Economic Security Project certainly can't provide that $3 trillion that would be necessary, as you mentioned earlier, if we were to implement this on a national scale in the US. And so that, I think, is what's necessary to understand to see the full debate around universal basic income, which I think is a microcosm of a larger debate that's going on right now between free market capitalists and socialism, especially in the most recent election with not just Andrew Yang, but also Bernie Sanders uh, being a pretty prominent candidate in that particular election. Yeah, I think there's a growing amount of receptiveness towards socialism or at least socialist principles in government from primarily younger voters, but there's still a pretty strong establishment that is extremely skeptical of anything that could be labeled as socialist because there's still remnants of the Red Scare running around in older Mm. Americans, whereas most people who know a lot about socialism think a little bit more like, I don't know, Sweden as an example or what, what have you. So it's it's gaining some traction, but capitalism is still a really prominent, forceful ideology in this country. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to recognize if you're having a reasonable discussion about these to not think dogmatically. And this could apply to any any debate. But um, this might be one of the themes of this podcast, I suppose, is to apply some level of critical thinking and consideration to the opposite side and and not just assume things or assert things like capitalism is amazing or socialism is amazing, carte blanche, but consider that neither one of them is going to work in the purest form. So really the questions are are usually how do we find the balance between the two? And so for the rest of the episode as we examine this, I think we'll cover three basic questions to attempt to find that balance. A, what is functional economically? B, how can we protect property rights of people by avoiding overtaxing in order to raise money to fund these sorts of programs? That would be the capitalist side. And then C, how can we provide for people who are underserved by the economy? Uh, That would obviously be the socialist side. So for the first question, what is functional economically? I think the biggest concern that's brought up when it comes to universal basic income is if we just give people money, what incentive do they have to work? Yeah, that's the biggest question I think people ask. You're going to give people money for no reason, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, they are going to do nothing to earn it. And I think it's important to point out we are the only creatures on this planet who have to pay to exist on the planet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's like there's an inherent cost of living just by being a human born on this planet. So it's kind of understandable that there might be some responsibility of governments to lessen the burden of that for people. Mm-hmm. If your inherent life has a cost to it, maybe maybe kick people a few bucks to help them pay for it. I don't know. Right. When certainly there is the money out there. And I, I think that what we just went through might provide us a little bit of insight into this question and and people's reactions to being given money for arguably free. Um, And what I mean by that is during the pandemic, 
obviously millions of people were losing their jobs and unemployment benefits were expanded pretty significantly in the United States. And I'm, I'm sure globally, I'm just more familiar, obviously, with the United States. And as a result of that, in April of 2020, the country had 14.8% unemployment. Now, that's not just because people were receiving payments. Obviously, there was also mass closures of businesses, which even if you wanted work, doesn't mean that you necessarily could find it. But on the flip side of that, as businesses have been trying to reopen, there are definitely some prominent narratives about how they have been struggling to find people willing to work. Yeah, I think a lot of people have found that when there are social safety nets in place, you don't have to subject yourself to verbal abuse from customers at Burger King all day for minimum <laughs> wage. I, a lot of what has happened situationally as a result of the pandemic is that people who just try to like live and work did not sign up to also be bouncers at fast food restaurants. And mm. so if you don't have to work, if there's a way that you're able to meet your basic needs, why would you? Mm -hmm. And now that those payments have ended and more businesses have reopened, currently the unemployment rate in the United States is at 4.2%. So pretty much back to normal. I think that number by most people would be considered fine. So it's hard to say what these numbers actually mean. You could definitely point to this as relatively analogous to universal basic income and saying when people are given money, they're not interested in working. You could also point to it and say that this is something unique to the situation created by the pandemic, and you can't really extrapolate based on that and apply it to implementation of universal basic income. Or you could kind of take away from this what you're talking about, Kelly, which is maybe workers have just been treated really crappily for the past decade or in increasingly crappily over time. And this finally gave them a way to say no, not put up with it anymore. Yeah. As long as there are ways to meet your other basic needs without working, that makes sense. But a lot of these programs we've been talking about, like you, like you said, the unemployment um, payments that were so generous initially no longer exist in that regard. So that is going to, I think, force some people back into the labor market. So it's hard to know if this new unemployment rate that we're looking at is because people are working or if they just stopped looking for jobs. But I think that there is at least an increasing debate. And this is probably another episode about how people are actually treated mm -hmm. <laughs> when they work in like the service sector and things like that. That might bring up the question of finding the balance of exactly how much should be given in the universal basic income. So I think in California, it was close to $1,800 a month for the pandemic unemployment assistance, which is substantially more than $1,000 a month proposed universal basic income. So maybe it's a matter of just finding that right number where, yes, we're ensuring that you are going to be able to survive relatively comfortably, like your basic, your fundamental needs are met, but you certainly are going to want more. You want to eat out every once in a while. You want to have a car instead of ride the bus every time you want to buy your kid that PlayStation. So your needs are met, but you still have an incentive to work. Still, there are some criticisms of universal basic income that probably 
won't be addressed by looking at what we've done historically with like those expanded social payments or social programs or things like that. Um, People are concerned about how you would pay for something like universal basic income if it actually leads to people not working because then you don't have a tax structure to work off of. And then the government would have to borrow the money and go into debt to pay for everything. Or like we talked about before, if they they printed money, there'd be an, an inflationary issue. But also people are really uncomfortable with the idea of people getting a thing without having actually earned a thing. And if there's no trade-off, if people are not producing anything, if they're not contributing to the system, but they're still getting something out of it, that on a mathematical level doesn't check out for a lot of people. And on a, on a social level, it makes people feel like there's a lot of laziness and unearned comfort and things like that. These concepts don't sit right with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And the the question of whether or not people would continue to work is super important because like you just mentioned, if that tax structure falls apart or if the revenue pool falls apart, then this is unsustainable as an economic policy. And even, even with Social Security and Medicare, we're having trouble paying off government obligations right now. We just saw a couple of days ago at the time of this recording, the US federal government having to extend our debt limit uh, for another few months, putting off voting on the budget, which is an episode that we did earlier. So if you're interested in the idea of the debt limits and borrowing, et cetera, check out that episode. But you know, I think so there is some interchange between those concepts and the concept of universal basic income. All of that being said, in a lot of ways, people don't necessarily have the choice of whether to work or not. So even if they even if they want to work and they're trying to work, doesn't necessarily mean that the work is out there for them. And in the future, this is likely to get even worse. So Elon Musk, who I'm sure we all know, crazy guy on Twitter, builds a bunch of robots and stuff, has been supportive of programs like the experiment in Stockton. And he has said that we need universal basic income because in the future, physical work will be a choice. And what he's referring to is the rise of robots and the rise of automation. And he's suggesting that as companies like his own create robots who will be doing mundane tasks so that humans don't have to, universal basic income will be necessary. I'm very uncomfortable with this uh, future Elon Musk produced robot, probably Mm -hmm. specifically because of the Elon Musk part of robot but <laughs> he's he said that this robot will be five foot eight and friendly and walk at a speed of five miles an hour and i don't know what any of that means in terms of robots but doesn't seem so bad it means i could take it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it means i could beat it in battle um mm. <laughs> but on the on the topic of automation and potential elon musk produced robots in the future there is an important question that's come up about how will we be able to afford life if robots are doing all of the work for us and then we're not doing any of the labor? Essentially, when all of the robots are doing all of the labor and there's no work for people to do, but people still need to like eat and live and exist, then if that's what makes universal basic income necessary, The whole discussion about incentivizing work or testing universal basic income to see if it means people will still want to work is kind of a meaningless 
discussion because that's not how it's going to work operationally in the future if there is no labor to go around. Well, and I, I think that's especially important because the kinds of jobs that that are being automated generally applies to the same classes um, or education level of people who would need universal uh, basic income traditionally. Mm-hmm. And that group of people are going to have a, a relatively hard time being able to re-educate or retrain themselves to shift into different career that would also not be automated in the near future. Mm-hmm. And an additional criticism of universal basic income in all these test cases is that if it does not incentivize pe- people to work, then it's going to hasten the rate at which we automate things to make up for labor shortages and bring on this whole situation where there is not enough labor to go around even more quickly, which is mm. a is a an expensive outcome for a lot of governments when that happens. So this turns into just a negative feedback loop of a little bit of automation happens, people get pushed out of their industries because of it and therefore need universal basic income. And then because they get the income, they're not incentivized to work, which incentivizes companies to automate even further, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you watch the expanse and that's what it looks like. (laughs) And again, not to get, not to get too far down this particular rabbit hole, but there have also been pretty high visibility individuals like Bill Gates and and again, like Elon Musk, who have also suggested the concept of a robot tax. So with a bunch of robots working for companies and the need for universal basic income, but nobody working to generate revenue from which to pull the funding for universal basic income, obviously this whole system falls apart. So they've suggested that companies who employ robots, quote unquote, employ robots, should have to pay a robot tax that would reflect the taxes that they would have paid were they to have human labor. I can't imagine that's going to go for very well. Um, no, I think I think they're saying it now to as a way to sort of ease our concerns about robots. And then as soon as it becomes the reality, they'll be like, I don't know what you're talking about. We don't want you, we don't need that shit. As an aside, I kind of hope I die before like it becomes robot land here. <laughs> um, anyway, so the the sort of culmination of these ideas is there's definitely a balance that needs to be drawn between ensuring that individuals who don't have the capacity or opportunity to work are still able to survive while not disincentivizing people to contribute back into society to ensure that this entire infrastructure doesn't collapse in on itself. And there is an actual Goldilocks zone of social benefits for people that does lead people to not work. Kind of like what we were talking about before with the temporary increased unemployment payments, but there are some certain situations where people find themselves in this zone where they get just enough benefits to cover all of their needs. It's called Mm -hmm. the benefits cliff. And then they have no incentive to get off of those benefits. So they're technically still living in a poverty situation with all of their needs met and no additional funds to do anything to help advance them out of that poverty situation. So they're kind of permanently stuck on the social welfare uh, sustenance program. So that's something I think that the critics of universal basic income are hoping to avoid. So 
with the talk of the amount of the payments that we've already mentioned, like $500 a month, $1,000 a month, that would probably not be enough money to get most people stuck into a position where they would have no incentive to do any additional work to make more money than that. Mm -hmm. And then, like I talked about before, if they got all the other social programs and there's only universal basic income, then people would probably necessarily have to work to meet their other financial needs and obligations. And I think, I mean, with with one of the two major programs, apart from Social Security being Medicare, uh, I just don't see you know an $800, $1,000 a month payment being able to replace a system given the state of the medical industry in the United States and the amount of money that we have to spend if we like skin our knee. <laughs> I don't see universal basic income being able to take the place of a Medicare system when those bills can range into the tens and thousands of, of dollars. You know, $1,000 a month is not going to cover that. Hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on the, the procedure. Have you gone to the emergency room for skinning your knee? <laughs> I went for breaking my ankle. So that's like, that's a, like something you couldn't handle at home with a, a, a Band-Aid and some Neosporin. I mean, technically, they just told me to to walk uh, walk it off and, and use crutches and a cast. Technically, I could have just bought crutches and a cast myself and done everything that they did for me. We should have a, an episode on DIY emergency medicine. <laughs> we started our very first episode on mandatory vaccinations. I don't get the flu vaccine. I'm just going to make my own crutches out of sticks. <laughs> People are gonna... anyway. We'll do an episode on, on Josh's how to how to stay alive in the post apocalyptic zombie zombie world. That would be useful. Start start incorporating all of our episodes into one show. Anyway, so what you're talking about with trying to find the balance in terms of the dollar amount brings us to a, a potential alternative, or I suppose the alternative that already exists, which we've talked about, which is unemployment, which actually gives more money per month, but there is a end date on it. So maybe that's a better solution of saying, if you are unemployed, we're going to give you a larger dollar amount to make sure that you can not just sustain yourself, but also have enough money to do the things that we mentioned earlier, whether it's make sure you have a car that works, pay for gasoline, buy a wardrobe for interviews, get some uh, training, additional training, additional classes, but you have that extra motivation of knowing that this, this money is going to stop coming at a certain point. And so seeing that end of the tunnel forces you to get yourself back into the labor market in a way that universal basic income that just exists always for you wouldn't do. Mm -hmm. And unemployment insurance has conditions tied to it as well. Unlike universal basic income, you can't qualify for unemployment if you didn't work <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and your employer. And I think you, I don't know how taxes work, but everybody pays into unemployment insurance mm -hmm. and universal basic income would be something that people got regardless of any contributions. Mm -hmm. And what we mentioned earlier, this, this spike of unemployment during the pandemic and the way it's played out seems to suggest that that's a, it's a decent system. Uh, during the height of the pandemic, uh, like we mentioned, I think the unemployment reached 14.8%. And now we're back down to 4.2%, not even out of the pandemic. I mean, obviously, it's still going on, but we helped people survive while it was happening. And now everybody's back to work. Are there other ways, though, to 
give some sort of means for people to pay their bills that might more directly guarantee that they had some sort of contribution back into society as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is the idea you mentioned earlier. If, if people should have to give something to get something. I think another alternative might be things like the infrastructure bill. The most famous example of this might have been Roosevelt's New Deal that basically was money given to people. Like we didn't necessarily need everything done that they were doing, but ensuring like, hey, if we're going to give you money, you might as well do something for it. And so we can we can help people through a difficult time while at the same time doing something for the country. Um, and and potentially, I think this is what Biden's trying to accomplish with his most recent infrastructure bill. I feel like he's trying to actually like help infrastructure. <laughs> I don't know if it's about people being paid. But the way he sells it, you know, it's also going to create jobs. It's going to create work for people, which they're going to get paid for. I'm just thinking about in the New Deal. Obviously, a lot of like important infrastructure projects were completed, but then there were also people literally paid to dig ditches for no reason, Mm -hmm. (laughs) except that they were digging ditches and therefore earning the income that they got as a part of the New Deal. So, I mean, this would be, again, this, this is a potential alternative to a universal basic income where they don't have to do anything. Um, has benefits, has disadvantages. Um, now we have shiny new ditches all over the place. <laughs> but but you know, while those people are building useless ditches or or metaphorical ditches in in today's time in the newest new version of the New Deal, um, potentially they could have instead been retraining themselves for a different job or maybe a more sustainable economic future where they support themselves. I think that's a more palatable solution than universality because people, like I said, feel very uncomfortable with the idea of people having income for no actual product, but it also avoids some of the criticism of universal basic income that I've kind of alluded to already that people would be qualifying by just being an adult to get this money who otherwise don't need to get the money. And that also doesn't sit right with a lot of people because that would mean everybody, people making six figures a year, people making billions of dollars a year would be getting these payments as well. And they obviously don't need them. So that would be essentially the government throwing money away into Mm -hmm. the pockets of people who are very much, very well taken care of already. Mm -hmm. And I know that the term universal means that everybody would get it, but Again, not to get super dogmatic about it, I'm I'm sure that you could implement, we'll call it almost universal basic income, <laughs> and you know where there would be a cutoff point. Once you've made X amount of money, it's phased out. Which again is similar, I think, to the payments that were given to families during the pandemic, not the pandemic unemployment assistance, but just the stipends that were handed out. Those phased out, I think, as once you reached 75K a year in income, uh, it was gone. So I understand that's not what the word universal means, but I do think there's a world where you could implement universal basic income without providing it universally. Well, that's an alternative that some people are actually discussing to universal basic income that actually kind of meets the same goal without 
giving Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk more money. And that's the idea of a guaranteed minimum income. Mm. And then if people are already making above the minimum amount, then they're fine. They don't need anything. But if they're not making above the minimum, then that's where it becomes some sort of government stimulus program. So it is means tested, which UBI is not. And it allows for people to get a certain standard of living. But then it raises a question that if there's a guaranteed minimum income, that the government is basically subsidizing the difference between your income and the certain level that they've set, like say the you make 35K a year, the government says a mandatory minimum income for everybody is 60K a year, the government's making up the 25K difference, then your employer has no incentive to raise your wage at all because the government's essentially subsidizing the difference. And and I think it it also reinforces what we were talking about earlier with a disincentive to work. If you are making less than that minimum, and even if you were to work, you were to basically make that same amount, now you have really no reason to work because I, I could I could work my ass off, make thirty six thousand a year if that was the amount that was established, or I could do literally nothing and still make thirty six thousand a year. So I think that it gains the benefit of not giving money to people who don't need it at the top end, but then it gains the disadvantage of exacerbating the incentive issue. And the other thing, like what like what you you said at the end there employers and companies are, I think, always looking for an excuse to pass on the responsibility to take care of workers to somebody else. I think maybe a good example of this might be the restaurant industry, where because tips exist, restaurants are able to pay their workers a dollar or $2 an hour, mm-hmm. regardless of minimum wage. And they say, well, they get tips, so they're, they're earning enough money. In an instance like this, I, I would be very surprised if we didn't see companies saying we shouldn't have to pay past a certain point because this minimum basic income exists that will make up the difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a criticism that could be under any system where there's a number involved like this. I think that's what we're seeing in the status quo with a minimum wage. A lot of Cities and states have passed some minimum wage increases, but there are still places where it's been the federal rate and it hasn't changed. And so employers like Walmart keep their staff below full time so they don't have to give them benefits. And then Mm. the government basically subsidizes Walmart by giving all these social programs to people who don't make enough money. So Walmart is free and clear of doing things like providing all of these social programs to people through a benefits package because the government's doing it for them. So I think that no matter what system is implemented, whether we keep what we have right now, or we have a minimum guaranteed income or universal basic income, there will be some way that businesses find a way to take advantage of it. So I guess these sorts of programs would certainly have to come with regulations to ensure that it's not taken advantage of either by people at the top who don't deserve to be recipients of it, gaining money from it, or by companies taking advantage and kind of passing off the buck to programs like this to just ensure that they don't have to take care of their own workers. So maybe this in conjunction with some sort of regulatory framework would be the would be the answer. Speaking of rich people, I guess for the second question of property rights, really the answer for universal basic income and how do we pay for it is our favorite solution, tax Jeff Bezos. Man, just taxing him alone 
would take care of so many issues. Right. So I know we keep coming back to that. So let's not, let's not, I mean, at this point, it's just kind of a joke to bring it up again, but you know, I'm I'm not joking. I'm not joking. (laughs) That is a solution. I don't think it, it requires much time to talk about it. Um, But again, going back to Elon Musk, there are, who is somebody that is in the Jeff Bezos category who is supportive of programs like this. I think there's support even from that demographic for, you know, recognizing that they have a responsibility to take care of some of the issues they create, especially through things like automation. But I think the interesting discussion in this particular episode is not the easy tax the rich people, but to compare this to the programs that are already in place to help individuals who might be living near or below the poverty line that that really need this assistance. So what about universal basic income versus some of the more traditional social programs that we've referenced throughout the episode? Yeah, this is an interesting question because I think one of the selling points and perhaps one of the downfalls of universal basic income is that it is equal for everybody involved, that it's not means tested, that it does something for literally everyone and there's no prerequisite to qualify for it, which is appealing if you're looking at it from some of the other socioeconomic philosophies, because like we've talked about before, if you have to pay to exist as a human, maybe get a little bit of the government to kick in for it just by the fact that you are a human being the only qualifier. So there's that side of it. But there's also something that you lose in universal basic income if it is a trade-off where we have the option right now to do more targeted poverty remediation where that actually is means tested and goes to the people who need it the most in the most dire situations. I'm not sure that universal basic income can actually do those sorts of things in the way that other programs like we've talked about, which have a specific purpose might, might be intended for. Right. And this, this would be things like Medicare, if you have health needs or housing stipends, if that's your issue or unemployment, et cetera. So targeted poverty remediation that is specifically designed to address the particular needs of any individual citizen. And we do know that the concept of universal basic income does help if we're talking about the case study, essentially, that we got during the pandemic, like we've already been kind of talking about with direct payments from the government. It did help a lot of people get out of poverty. It did help a lot of people put themselves into positions where they were better able to be employed and contribute after these temporary payments eventually ended. So the question I think then becomes, does universal basic income necessarily preclude all of these other options for targeted social programs, considering the cost that is involved? And what do we lose if we lose those targeted poverty relief programs? Well, I, I think certainly if we're saying universal basic income would cost between three to four trillion, and these programs cost upwards of $2 trillion, I, I do think that we're in a situation where it's an either or. Even though money is imaginary. <laughs> well, so is healthcare and housing and <laughs> all the other things and food. Well, those are those are tangible, but you know, ultimately the government could find a way to pay for it with their existing taxation 
and other cash reserves, or they could print more money, but they won't probably. So it, I think it would have to become a trade-off. And whereas those programs that we're talking about now, these targeted poverty remediation programs go towards specific people, one of the criticisms of universal basic income is that if it's going to be removing money from programs that are designed for people who are most at need and then dispersing it universally throughout the general population, that means in the majority of cases, it's going to be spreading money upwards, which I think would be considered a regressive system as opposed to progressive. And, and in my mind, that's one of the bigger, one of the bigger issues I have with it. Yeah, that's a that's a criticism that's come up for it. But some of the proponents of universal basic income say that the people who would be eligible for universal basic income who, quote, don't need it, would still be contributing more towards it through the existing way that they're taxed. So it kind of shakes out. Mm -hmm. It's it's like it's like a small rebate for them, kind of, I I suppose. But that's the same way that I mean, they're going to be contributing more whether they receive universal basic income or not. I mean, that's just how the tax system works, right? So I don't think that that's going to change or improve if we implement this system. So we've been talking a lot about the United States and especially these discussions of here's the social safety nets that we have currently. And those are the sorts of things we would be looking to replace with a universal basic income. But there's a lot of places around the world that don't have such established or developed social programs. And actually, I think that these are some of the places where we've seen the most interesting experiments with universal basic income. So on a global level, the United Nations put forth an initiative to reduce global poverty. And as it happens, it's been pretty successful in the time of about one generation. More than a billion people have been lifted out of poverty globally. But the ways that they did it were um, not universal basic income, uh, (laughs) um, but there are things that are government funded that were actually pretty helpful. So one of the things that circumstantially helped quite a bit in the case of China is that they became more globalized, which meant, you know, increased amount of income for China due to trade that helped China build infrastructure, uh, guarantee education, and it helped fund the moves of people who were in drought-stricken areas to other areas which were able to be farmed. So all of these things were very helpful for getting people out of poverty, both in the short term with getting them to an area with arable land, um, but also that the guarantee of education is a really great tool to help make sure that there's not generational poverty traps. Right. And so, so these would be more targeted strategies not universal basic income. But -hmm. I think if we move to Mexico or Brazil, they get a little bit closer to universal basic income where they were giving money to poor individuals in the countries, but it wasn't completely universal. I think that there were stipulations, requirements for the people receiving the money. Mm -hmm. So for poor families, the requirements were that the children in those families needed regular physician checkups and school attendance. 
Both mm-hmm. of those things are also incredibly important to get people out of poverty, to have a certain baseline of health and to get a certain level of education. So they were able to help them in the immediate sense with money to help them meet their needs, but also set them up for a more long-term sustainable future by making sure that they were healthy and educated people within their society, which made them better able to work, contribute, and be self-sufficient. I suppose when we say what universal basic income quote unquote is, the fact that it has actually never been implemented on a mass scale anywhere, like all of it's hypothetical. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we say that this isn't universal basic income, I suppose what we mean here is that it's not universal basic income in its purest form, meaning everybody gets a dollar amount that they can do whatever they want with. But this is starting to get pretty close to it where all of these people are getting dollar amounts with some requirements of things that they have to do to continue to receive it. Yeah, the bottom line ends up being that a very big contribution towards the alleviation of poverty globally has been that the government steps in and provides something, funding, Mm -hmm. infrastructure, social programs, what have you. But there's not a whole lot aside from that that just gets people out of poverty magically. Mm -hmm. Unless like, I don't know, somebody's super gifted and invents something out of nowhere and all of a sudden they're rich. Like that's that's just such a rare story. I don't know how else people get out of poverty when there's so many social and economic factors that keep people in poverty unless the government comes in and helps alleviate those situations. Robots. No. So I don't know why I'm so uncomfortable with robots lately, but this whole discussion is making me kind of like, Ooh. the, um, I, I think that a better example maybe, or, or a more specific example to universal basic income might be what happened in Namibia between 2008 and 2009, where all residents below the age of 60 who were living in a particular region of the country received a basic income of 100 Namibian dollars, which is about $7 us per person per month. And this one did come with no strings attached and regardless of their socioeconomic status. So the funding for this came from private donors, both in the country and also around the world. And as a result, we we did see some pretty serious benefits off of this one. And th- this is the one that I think is the closest to what we're talking about as a proposal. Curious about the age cutoff with um... What what happened to people over the age of sixty? I, I I'm not I'm not really sure about that. You know, potentially, they were saying you know potentially past sixty, they figure those people are less likely to work, or maybe there's other government, hmm. um, maybe other government programs designed to help them, or maybe you know in a lot of countries around the world that are that are more family oriented, those people are supported by, you know, the under sixties. Who would be receiving this money? I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not really sure what the cutoff was for. But as a result of this experiment, according to reports from the Center for Public Impact, they said child malnutrition dropped, school enrollment rates went up, and poverty-related crime like theft fell. So it seemed to have really good support, but this particular pilot program was never rolled out nationwide. So just like every other example that we've seen, it's been a limited duration and a limited geographic region. So again, Mm -hmm. we really don't have a test case for making this actually universal. Right. Which, which is the same criticism, you know, for the examples 
So these are international examples. And for, for the examples that we mentioned earlier, like the city of Stockton, I think that these experiments, again, only deal with half of it, which is if you have the money, of course, it helps people to give it to them. I'm not sure how insightful that is, you know, whether it's domestically here or, or internationally. Another benefit, though, that I think is interesting that was pointed to internationally, and I, I could definitely see this happening regardless of the country you're in, but this particular experiment was done in India, where a universal basic income program in 2013 and 2014 um, resulted in UNICEF noting that women's empowerment was one of the most important outcomes of this experiment. And they pointed out that women receiving a universal basic income participated more in household decision-making and benefited from improved access to food, healthcare, and education. And so I think that the implications across gender lines for a program like this are really interesting also. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting thing to, to find out. A lot of women globally, and even in the United States, don't have a lot of agency over their finances. Mm-hmm. It's one of the ways that that darn patriarchy keeps them in check. So giving them their own access to money gives them a lot of agency that they're not going to have otherwise. So, I mean, I like that. Mm-hmm. And and back in Namibia, again, they, they found similar results saying that um, universal basic income reduced the dependency of women on men for their survival and reduced the pressure to engage in transactional sex as well. So I think that Particularly, uh, again, I, I guess I don't even want to say that particularly in in developing countries, because I think that this is true, whatever country you look at, just given the dynamics of of most relationships, there's definitely a dependence on whoever happens to be the breadwinner, you know, holding a bit of control over whoever is not the breadwinner. Um, and so that might be kind of a unexpected benefit of programs like this to just give that agency back. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there needs to become more of a norm of um, not only women having their own money and control over their own money, but even in some cases, women getting more money than men, either through government programs or via employment. A lot of men, even in the United States and other developed countries, are very uncomfortable with the idea of women making more than them. You heathen. (laughs) <laughs> sacrilege. Yeah, um, I know. How how dare I? Shouldn't I get uh, back in line or in the kitchen or whatever? You but. take your 70 cents and you like it. <laughs> anyway, so um looking, you know, as we said, looking to a, de- a more developed country. Now this this happened in the 1970s, so it's a bit of an older reference, but in Canada they had a trial for universal basic income and they also found that emergency room visits as a result of domestic violence reduced during the period of that trial. The implication, again, is just the connection that exists between financial independence and dependence in a relationship. That is a wild statistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think that a lot of people are unaware if they're in like a normal functional healthy relationship that there's sort of like this massive amount of coercion that exists when there's income inequality within a relationship. And obviously it gets really scary sometimes. So yikes. That's another thing that to use the pandemic as sort of our analogy for this particular topic, again, during the pandemic, as economic stresses increased on households, we saw increases in 
domestic violence, increases of just tension in relationships, um, increases in things like suicide. It, it's it's hard to deny that money has an impact on people's psyche, um, which again, like you said, considering it's not real, seems to be a bit of a shame and is is a is a definite argument that everybody should live with at least a certain amount of money to where they don't feel the need to harm themselves or other people. That seems pretty straightforward to me. That's a real controversial stance you took there. <laughs> um, anyway, so the the issue for these experiments and really the ones that we mentioned earlier is it's always being implemented on a smaller scale and the money is always coming from an external source. So whereas the benefits, I think, in every case are undeniable, the question of is this sustainable still remains of how could we implement something like this, given that if it were to be done on a universal scale, as the name suggests, it would have to be sustaining from within. It couldn't be reliant on external sources of funding, like every one of these cases that we've talked about throughout the episode has. Yeah, that really speaks to the idea that this is probably at best a theoretical concept with a few small tests that have been pretty promising, but it's not scalable. Mm. So is that, I guess, end of the episode, time for adjudication. Do What are your thoughts on universal basic income? Is it possible to implement? Is it possible in particular places, but not others? And if it is possible, does that mean it's better than other alternatives that we have? What's possible and what's realistic, I think, are two different things in this discussion. I think it is possible that governments could provide universal basic income without sacrificing other targeted poverty relief programs. But I don't think that's actually feasible for all the reasons that we've already talked about. So when I'm left considering, do I prefer universal basic income or do I prefer targeted poverty relief? I don't think I've been very um, cagey about my opinion on this, that I, I don't think that universal basic income is as effective as more targeted programs are. I think that it could be helpful for some people, but I don't think that it does enough in a lot of instances to get people to a position where they're not just doing the basic subsistence level of life and get them into a position where they're advanced out of poverty. I think that's what a lot of targeted poverty relief programs are trying to do is not just get people to survive, but to give them the resources so that they can get out of that situation. A lot of them are designed to be temporary so that people are not cyclically dependent on them. Um, and if they have to be dependent on them forever, I don't think that's a problem either, but giving people who want to do more for themselves, the tools and resources to do that. I don't think you get that from UBI. I think you get it from other programs. So I, I, I think it's super great that Andrew Yang wants to give me a thousand dollars. I'll take a thousand dollars a month. I would not turn down a thousand dollars a month. I just want to make that absolutely clear. <laughs> um, I don't need a thousand dollars a month probably. Mm. And, and if you were to be receiving that thousand dollars a month, it would be pulled out of a medical payment for someone who needs it, or maybe pulled out of a housing stipend for somebody who needs it. 
um, in, in a world where we had to choose between these targeted payments and universal basic income. So I, I think I agree with you there that in the US at least, universal basic income just seems like a very inefficient way of redistributing wealth. Again, if it's a choice between the two strategies. But I actually think that in in some of these countries that we talk about that don't have an infrastructure set up for targeted relief on specific issues, I actually think that universal basic income could be a fantastic option. The caveat being it would have to be funded still externally. But I, I also think that that could be incredibly reasonable because if we look at Namibia, for example, that we brought up, they were paying $7 a month per person, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Whereas in the United States, we we're talking about $1,000 a month. So I think my take on universal basic income is as the country as a whole gets more developed, the amount of money needed to meet that kind of minimum standard of living starts to get closer and closer to unreasonable levels, in which case the shift has to be made towards targeted assistance. But in those countries, as they get richer, targeted assistance, that infrastructure also gets more developed. But maybe for these more developing countries, universal basic income might be a fantastic way to sort of redistribute the kind of funding that's taken out of them by globalization and mm -hmm. the sort of infiltration by multinational corporations. So taxing these companies and then providing those taxes back in the form of universal payments to people and allowing them to use it to build their lives however they see fit, I actually think might be a really interesting idea. Although maybe less realistic because really what rich country gives a shit about what poor country. But, you know, <laughs> if you can dream, I can dream. Well, that, that's a very compelling argument. I think that, yeah, looking at things outside of our comfortable Western developed world type of situation and looking at how relatively inexpensive it would be to get people out of poverty in other countries, there are ways that this might actually be something that can be done on a national scale for a lot of countries where the cost of living is so much different than, than the American cost of living. Mm. So can India implement a universal basic income in India? Probably not. Can the United States in the United States? Probably not. But could France do it in Northern African nations, potentially. Should the United States do it in South American nations? Almost certainly. Where, where I think we're going to land then is that every country that was once a colonial power <laughs> has to <laughs> pay some sort of reparations to all of the former colonies Mm -hmm. in in the form of universal basic income to all of the citizens of those countries because they've been living with the after effects of colonialism for centuries now. And then we can all sleep at night. It's like a big buddy system. You know, when you're in like the fourth grade and you get like a big buddy from the ninth grade, it's like that, but for countries. Except the big buddy like beat up the fourth grader for like <laughs> their entire childhood up to that point. Mm.